0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Eric Klein. Eric is a urologist and chairman of the Cleveland Clinic Glickman Urologic and Kidney Institute. He's here today for our podcast again, this time to talk to me about the ISO PSA test. So welcome, Eric.
1: Thanks, Dale, nice to be here. Well, maybe
0: we could start out. What exactly is the ISO PSA test?
1: It is um, a new lab test, a new assay, that measures PSA in the bloodstream of men at risk of prostate cancer in a novel way. All the current PSA assays that are out on the market are concentration based. They're monoclonal antibody based and they measure the amount of the major PSA molecules in the bloodstream. ISO PSA takes us back to eighth grade aqueous chemistry class. It measures the PSA related proteins that are present in blood in a way that looks at their chemical structure rather than their concentration. And the way it works is in a single tube, there are two different aqueous phases. For example, dextran and FICOL in the same tube. It's like oil and water, they don't mix. And when you put a drop of blood or several drops of blood that have proteins in them, the proteins segregate in the two phases, top and bottom, based on their physical structure and the different ways that they interact with these two aqueous phases. And so when you measure the ratio of um, how the PSA isoforms segregate. You can predict the risk of cancer. That's probably the simplest way I can explain. It. It's a little complicated, but it's it's different than the current assays.
0: And I guess when you think about this as a test, this, um, as I recall, is something that's done reflexively in people who already have an elevated PSA. Is that correct?
1: Yes. The, the idea is, at least currently, to use this test to determine whether someone with an elevated PSA is at risk of high grade cancer. So the problem with PSA, as you know well, is that it's prostate specific, but it's not prostate cancer specific. And in fact, it's correct to say that most men in the world who have an elevated PSA actually don't have prostate cancer. They have non-cancerous prostate enlargement or BPH. And so what happens if we use PSA alone as a reason to do a biopsy, we do way too many biopsies. That's bad for patients because it's a nuisance, it's uncomfortable, it's costly, there's a risk of infection. And we often get back benign tissue or low-grade cancer. And in today's world, almost all low-grade cancer gets managed by active surveillance. And the reality is we'd rather not even know that it's present because it's not likely to hurt anybody. ISO-PSA is far more accurate in finding high-grade cancers, Gleason's grade seven or higher cancers that generally we treat than PSA is. That's what its advantage is.
0: So clearly people are oftentimes concerned um, that they might have cancer. They And you'll have patients will say, you know, I just want to know, I, I have to know. Of people that have an elevated PSA, how many of them have cancer? And of the people who say, I want a biopsy, how many might have complications?
1: Yeah, so PSA in terms of predicting cancer is almost a coin flip. It's a little better than 50%. But a lot of those cancers are low grade. And so, we would again, we'd rather not know about them. So, the more relevant question is what percentage of patients with a PSA over four have a grade seven or higher cancer that needs treatment? And it's less than 50 percent. ISO PSA is accurate with a readout of Gleason seven or higher cancer at 80 percent. So, if you have an ISO PSA below the cutoff, which is defined as six, this ratio is defined as six, less than six you have a 92% chance of not having a high-grade cancer. Let me say that again, a 92% chance of not having high-grade prostate cancer. You might have low-grade cancer, but we don't care about that. And if your iso-PSA is above six, then you have about a 50% chance of having a high-grade cancer, not just any cancer, but a high-grade cancer. And I think most urologists and probably most patients would recommend and be willing to have a biopsy for um, a 50% risk of high grade cancer. So complications, in the standard way biopsies are done, transrectally, everybody gets some rectal bleeding and typically some urinary bleeding for a day or two because uh, when the needle goes into the prostate, it causes some bleeding into the ducts in the prostate for six or eight or 10 weeks afterwards, men will have blood in their ejaculate, in their semen, which is benign, but scary. And the main risk is of infection. So about 3% of men overall after a transrectal biopsy get an infection, and about half a percent actually get bacteremic and septic. There have been in the distant past uh, reports of deaths after prostate biopsy. There haven't been any reported in many years now because we have better antibiotic regimens. You know, along that line, let me just add as a tangent, we're starting to shift to transperineal prostate biopsy instead of transrectal, where the needle goes through the skin rather than through the rectum, and that reduces the risk of infection to virtually zero.
0: But still, with those kind of numbers, it is really, really important to minimize biopsy, so it makes this even more important.
1: Yeah, when you do the big cost-benefit analysis, when you look at what the benefits are, it's really interesting. Iso-PSA has been available exclusively at the Cleveland Clinic for about five months now. That's changing as we speak and will disappear soon. But in our first 200 patients who had iso-PSA across 25 clinicians, we did 60% fewer biopsies, which is tremendous, right? So we we have avoided biopsying 60% of patients who were likely to have either benign biopsies or only low-grade cancer. And um, that saves on the cost and inconvenience for the patient and and the risk.
0: And in our current era with... uh... Covid minimizing procedures and interactions and things is important as well.
1: Yes, all of those things. But even absent Covid, um, there's real benefit. And we published one cost benefit analysis of how this would how this would work out and and not only most importantly do the right thing for the patients, but but save the system money.
0: When we think about uh, people in getting diagnosed with cancer or, or concerned about diagnosis for cancer. Of course, there's a lot of anxiety. What kind of time frame is this? So patients get a PSA, it's elevated, they go to get this test. How much longer uh, do they have to wait to get an idea if they have cancer or not?
1: Yeah, right now, it's about a five-day turnaround time. And that's because it's a new test. The lab is just scaling up. And it does have to be sent out to a central lab that's here in Cleveland. And eventually, that turnaround time, I hope, will be even a little quicker.
0: You mentioned available here at Cleveland Clinic. You mentioned that that might be changing. Can you elaborate on that at this point?
1: Yes. For the first three months, I think it was available only exclusively at the Glickman Institute. The company has started to make it available in select markets as a lab-developed test for an out-of-pocket cost, and that's going to continue to expand. And the company is preparing an application for FDA approval that will get submitted, I think, in the first quarter of next year. And they have already engaged major insurers to educate them about the test and get them interested in understanding what the potential, you know, insurance savings are and so forth. So, you know, if it gets, it does have breakthrough designation by FDA, which means that once the application is submitted, that a decision on on approval uh, or not approval will be will come relatively quickly. And if FDA approves it, then. Usually, Medicare coverage follows, and when Medicare pays for something, usually private insurers follow after that.
0: When we think about uh, physicians that might be listening in, uh, how would they go about getting this test for their patients at this point?
1: Well, for the moment, in Cleveland, the patient needs to be seen at the Cleveland Clinic and and at the Glickman Institute. And I'm not actually certain um, as to when the company is going to make the test more widely available um, in the local community here. Soon, though, I think soon, and we'll have we'll we'll um, publicize that on our website when it happens.
0: All right. How does this compare to some other tests that are either available or being developed? How does this fit into the the market of looking for prostate cancer in patients?
1: Yeah. It's, so it's a great question. So there are two other reflex tests on the market, meaning tests intended to be used in a similar in a similar way. Elevated PSA, do I need a biopsy or not? That sort of thing. One of them is called the four K score which is a monoclonal antibody-based test that measures PSA, um, a precursor to PSA, and some other related proteins. And the other one is called Prostate Health Index, which measures PSA, free PSA, and a precursor and so forth. There have been head-to-head studies of those two tests in the reflex setting, and they perform identical to each other. We have not done any head-to-head tests with ISO-PSA. My guess is that, there, that they're going to be in the same ballpark of about 80% accuracy. If you combine ISO-PSA with MRI guided imaging and so forth, we can push the accuracy, the area under the curve, to around 0.83 or 0.84. So ISO PSA may be marginally better, but honestly, there haven't been head-to-head tests yet in the same population. You know, in, in terms of practice, the, the, the days of biopsying everybody who have a PSA above four are over. And a reflex test. Any three of these would would serve the purpose of avoiding some unnecessary biopsies. ISO PSA is very easy to use. It is designed for those who work in an Epic EMR environment to be easy to order in Epic and then have the result returned to your Epic inbox. And that's not always the case with the other tests that are available. So this will be a little easier. And theoretically because it measures all the isoforms of PSA in the bloodstream, not just the ones that you need to know about because the monoclonal antibody may have slightly broader sensitivity and specificity. We haven't proven that, but it may be so.
0: So far, we've been discussing patients come in, they get a PSA that's elevated. We're trying to decide on that initial biopsy. Is there a thought that this could ultimately have a benefit for patients who are in active surveillance to see if their
1: tumor has become high grade? Yeah, there is that thought and not much data on that yet. Uh, But that is another area that we'll be looking at once the lab scales up and can handle more samples. I mean, there's a critical need to figure out in patients on surveillance uh, whether their next biopsy, their next surveillance biopsy will show high grade cancer or something else that would change management and push you towards treatment. There are a lot of markers out there that have been looked at in that space, for example, 4K um, and prostate health index, and they're not predictive for that. We've looked at serial MRIs. M- serial MRI is also not predictive. So we're looking for a biomarker that can help us avoid repeat biopsy and menon surveillance. And I don't know if ISO-PSA will be that biomarker or not, but it is planned for study. I would say one other important thing about iso-PSA. I just saw the data for this this morning. It performs equally well in the African-American population um, as it does in non-African-Americans. And I think that's important. It'll be a useful tool across the spectrum of everybody who gets prostate cancer.
0: Oh, that's uh, that's outstanding because certainly there uh, there are differences in risk. When we think about um, you know something you've talked about frequently is this whole nature of not treating people that don't need treated, and the number of patients with prostate cancer, and you know how we over-treat often in the past. Just broadly speaking, in terms of again of of scope, you know about 190,000 cases a year. How many of those cases do you think really need treated? Where do you, where do you think we can settle with a test like this to really making sure the
1: right people get treated? It depends on your biopsy strategy. So the percentages can be misleading. So if you use current biopsy strategy, which is biopsy everybody with a PSA over four, probably 60% of those patients have low-grade prostate cancer and don't need to be treated. If we stop biopsying those patients, and we only biopsy patients who have high-grade cancers or are likely to have high-grade cancer, the percentage who actually need treatment is going to go up, but that's an artifact of doing fewer biopsies. But it's a substantial portion. Only about 60% of men with low-grade cancer across the U.S. actually go on surveillance even though probably 90% of them are really good candidates for it.
0: So ultimately, we're talking about screening and strategies to figure out who has uh, prostate cancer. And this this test seems like it's going to be very, very good in sorting out who actually needs treated. But while we have you here, views on screening, there's a lot of confusion in terms of who gets screened, when they get screened, how that process works. Can you Can you share some thoughts on on uh, how you view screening and where we are now and what what this would ideally look like?
1: Let me say first that there's solid evidence that screening saves lives. It prevents men from dying of prostate cancer. And um, I say that based on my own personal experience, when I started in urology, PSA didn't exist. Half the men, more than half the men that we saw with newly diagnosed prostate cancer had metastatic disease. And the commonest and the only treatment for that then was castration, bilateral orchiectomy. Five years after PSA was introduced in the late 1980s, we saw this huge stage shift so that 90%, 90 to 95% of newly diagnosed men had early stage disease and not metastatic disease. And I am absolutely convinced based on that experience alone that PSA screening works. But beyond that, we have actual data. There was a large trial done in Europe that we have a 16-year follow-up on now that shows a marked reduction in the risk of dying of prostate cancer on the order of 27% reduction in the risk of dying of prostate cancer in patients aged 55 to 69, which is really the target population for screening. And more important than that, and really overlooked and not appreciated, is that not only was the death rate Markedly lower, but there was a 35% reduction in the need for palliative therapy for metastatic disease. You know, metastatic disease is painful and costly to treat, and that needs to be added into the denominator of the benefit of screening. And if you look out, um, if you look at the number needed to screen to save one life based on that data and in some projected data out to 25 years from that trial, the results are better than. Um, comparable numbers of screening for breast cancer and so forth. So then the question becomes who to screen. So we rarely see prostate cancer in men under 50. So the current recommendation is generally uh, baseline PSA at age 50. And then how often someone gets screened after that depends on what their PSA is at 50. If your PSA is below the population average, which is about 0.7, you probably only need to be screened once every two to three years. And if your PSA is below two when you're 60, the likelihood of you getting metastatic or lethal prostate cancer is under 2%. And so you can probably be screened even less frequently after that. On the other hand, if you have risk factors, if you're African American, if you have a strong family history, particularly in first degree relatives, brothers and fathers, we know that those individuals are higher risk. If you're a BRCA carrier, we know that you're at three to five times higher risk of getting prostate cancer. Those people ought to be screened certainly at age 50 and some would argue even starting at age 40 or 45 um, to be followed closely and to be screened yearly uh, for life. Excellent. So
0: just to reiterate back on the, this ISO PSA test, can you just remind us as, we, as we're as we wrapping up here, who's best uh, suited for this test? I know that there's certain PSA limits uh, that might be in play. Who, sh- who should we be thinking about?
1: Yeah, so the the FDA label request is going to be for men over 50, 50 or over, um, who have a PSA above four, and who are being considered for prostate biopsy based on those characteristics. Uh, of course, you would never order a test unless it's going to change your management. So, you know, if you have someone who's 50 who's got three brothers who got prostate cancer when they were in their 50s and their PSA is four and a half, that's probably someone you're going to do an MRI on and biopsy. But for the average patient who doesn't have those those risk factors and PSA above four um, iso-PSA is a great choice to decide whether or not they need to be biopsied. Well,
0: thank you very much for being with us today.
1: All right. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, Advances canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify,